The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Well, good morning, Mars Hill. How are we doing? We're still here. Nibiru didn't smash into us, that secret planet, with the prediction of the end of the world this weekend. Just goes to show us, once again, no man knows the day or the hour. But I really thought it was Saturday, so I didn't prepare for my sermon until this morning. This is going to be terrible and really short. (laughs) That secret planet never shows up when you want it to. We're continuing on in our mini-series of spiritual disciplines, headed towards the book of Ruth. So if you are a guest here at Marcel for the first time, typically what we do is we go through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, passage by passage. But in between each book, we like to do a series on a topic. So the Lord laid on our hearts this time to do spiritual disciplines. And with this sermon, we have two additional ones. Next week, we'll talk about worship and Sabbath. The following week, we'll talk about service and submission. And then we will begin our series in Ruth then. Why spiritual disciplines? The word discipline sounds scary, but it shouldn't. This is something that uh, I was reminded of reading scripture this week, that the Lord disciplines those he loves. This is uh, an opportunity for our growth and for us to experience his joy and his love. This is part and parcel with sanctification of the Christian life. It is how we become more and more Christ-like through the work of the Holy Spirit. And as Peter said, we are to supplement our faith. Not that these things are our faith, but that they come alongside and they bolster and they encourage and they grow our faith. Spiritual disciplines are reading the Bible, praying, fasting, meditating on the Word of God. And so today, we're going to talk about silence and solitude and meditation and prayer. It sounds like four different sermons. I promise you it could be, but they are all interconnected. And so what we want to do is we want to see how all of these relate one to another. And we want to ask questions like, in our busy digital lives, is there any place anymore for solitude and silence? In our world of skepticism, what role should meditation play in our life? And in our DIY individualistic culture, why should we pray? Seems like uh, it would be better if I would just do and get something done. So let's discover what God's word has to say about these things. First, we're going to turn to Ephesians 5, verse 15 through 16. So it's Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. To look at solitude and silence as a best use of our time. Paul is beginning to wrap up his letter to the Ephesians. And he commands them this. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. This is a strange verse to bring up, to begin talking about solitude and silence, isn't it? I mean, you would think that the best use of our time would be the exact opposite of solitude and silence. That sitting in solitude and silence is not a good use of our time. In your mind, think of right now what you think would be the best use of time. It probably has something with you producing, you working, you creating, maintaining, going to the gym, which is just maintaining your body, networking, doing hobbies, volunteering, creating something, crafting, crafting is a word, and I just created it. Even now I am creating new words. 
I will uh, give you credit when I submit that to the Oxford English Dictionary later in the year. Volunteering. Why, why do we think this way? Why do we think this way? One word, America. That's why we think this way. America. It's in our culture to produce. We are in a culture that is built on production. A long time ago, when the Puritans and the pilgrims came over from England and then later from Western Europe, they built a culture that was based on something called the Protestant work ethic, which is which finds its origin in Calvinistic thought that if you want to prove your election sure, then one of the ways you do it is you work. And if you work well into the glory of God and not to man, he blesses you. Therefore, you can be sure of your election if you work really well. So that's where the Protestant work ethic comes. Well, that's not really here anymore, but it's been replaced by something called the meritocracy. If you want to get ahead in this world, if you want to achieve the American dream, what you need to do is you need to work and build and do and produce, and you will receive your reward. So invent, build, manufacture, produce. Get yourself involved in American ingenuity. Is there anything wrong with those things? No. But if we don't stop for a second, hit the pause button and ask, is the only thing I'm supposed to do in my spiritual life work? Well, maybe there might be a problem. I want to show you just how embedded this is into our culture. We're like fish in a river. And this idea of working and producing is so embedded into our narrative and into our life, we may not even recognize it. The history of our greatest inventions revolves around work. In the late 19th century in America, we started getting frustrated because we wanted to work some more, but we couldn't because something happens around 6, 7, 8 p.m. at night, the sun goes away. And you can't work in the dark. So what happens? Hipster light bulbs in cafes are invented, right? This is what you see in the coolest of the coffee shops. And right over there, I think, and on the stage. See, it's everywhere, right? Thomas Edison comes and he says, I got a great idea. Let's keep working into the night. I'm going to invent a light bulb so we don't have to burn candles anymore. Well, great. Now we have more hours to work, but people are working in different parts of the city. You got six there, eight there, 10 over there, and it's inefficient. So in 1884 comes the first skyscraper built in what would become downtown Chicago, the first home insurance building. So more people could come, they could work at night, and now they could work together instead of being separated by one another. Well, the more people you have working at night, in the more efficient area, you need to get more people in. Well, it's really hard if you're doing it by horse and buggy or you're walking to the downtown area of a city. So how do we get there more efficiently and faster? Well, here comes the Model T, right? So now you can get to work faster and you can work long hours more efficiently. But demand rose for these things and we wanna get them out more so more people can work and more people can produce. And so what does Henry Ford do? He creates the assembly line to crank out more of these and to produce more of these. Fast forward to 2017, you are sending emails while flying at 30,000 feet to a factory in China or someplace, right? You can see that this is part and parcel of what it means to be in our culture. Our culture values producing. And because it values producing, it changes the way we think about time as if it were a commodity. Think about that and how we talk about time. We buy time, we spend time, we use time, we invest a great deal of time, we save time, we waste time, 
We lose time. We find time. We yearn for quality time. Time is a commodity, and so we become very sensitive in how we spend our time because we are the ones that are supposed to produce, right? Is this what Paul means, though, in his passage, making the best use of time? Actually, that word best use comes from the root word in in the Greek language to redeem. So what he's saying is, because the times are evil, we need to redeem our time. We need to redeem our time. Yes, there is production involved in this redemption, but there are moments in your life and daily that you need to allow God to produce in you in that time rather than you produce God's production in us, not what we are producing. Martin Luther is famously reported to have said this after somebody asked him, How do you, what do you do during a day? Martin Luther said, work, 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 from early to late. In fact, I have so much work to do, I start every day three hours in prayer. Some of us are like, what? That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) If you have so much work to do, why are you wasting time praying? Like, that's our gut reaction to that kind of a statement, right? Why did he do that? Because... He rightly understood that following God's will is never a waste of time. And in those moments, when we're talking about, Lord, how do I redeem and steward my time, does he not shift priorities for us? Does he not say these things are not as important as this thing here? Knowing God's will is learned through prayer. It's learned through meditating on God's word. And it produces in us, by God's work, what is best for us. See, Luther knew that before he began producing work, work from early to late, he needed to allow God to first produce in him. It wasn't that production's a bad thing. It's just that we have to understand that God needs to produce in us as well. And so solitude and silence and meditation and prayer are those precious moments when God produces in us. So how are we redeeming our time? Is there a best practice for us in using our time to allow God to produce in us? How do you steward the time that you have been given? Because we are all given a limited, finite amount of time. How are you stewarding that time in order that God may produce something in you? Well, I would argue, and I hope that you would agree, that one of the best ways to redeem this time is to seek out solitude and silence for meditation on God's word and for prayer to him. We struggle with this, right? When I say we should seek out solitude, and silence, some of us might shift in our chairs a little bit. When I hear solitude and silence, first thing I think of is this is punitive, right? I go from being my age back to like 11, and I hear my mom say, you did what to your sister? Go to your room and be quiet, right? So to me, solitude in my room, and this is before video games, by the way, well, I mean, they were there. We were just too poor to afford them. So, so, so to me, going to my room in solitude is a punishment. And in addition, to make 
At worst, I have to be quiet now. So silence is also a punishment. Some of us think, you know, like we said earlier, it's a waste of time. Others might think it's just plain weird. It's awkward. Like only weirdos go off by themselves and are quiet, right? You don't camp, I can tell, if that's your action, right? But, but here's the deal. It's not punitive. It's not a waste of time. It's not, it's not weird. Because Jesus himself frequently sought solitude and silence. And this is the son of God that we were talking about. If it's important to him, shouldn't it be important to us? So all the gospels record that Jesus would go off into solitude and silence and pray. In one spot in particular, Luke records that after Jesus had healed a man from leprosy, the report got out about Jesus and went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. If Jesus was American, he would say, line them up. Let's find out the most efficient and effective way to get all these people healed in the quickest amount of time. But he withdrew to desolate places to pray. Very different from our reaction, right? Desolate places, I'll be honest, I'm not in love with that translation. The NIV says lonely places, and the KJV says wilderness, and I think that best describes it, right? Jesus is not like, look, I'm going to the Sahara to pray. <laughs> it's just he's, he's going out away from towns and people and villages. Maybe it was desolate, I don't know, but that's not the point. He's getting away to be alone and to pray. And notice what he did. He prayed. Why? Look, can't you just pray on the, on the way to work in the car? Yeah. You pray in the presence of other people? Sure. We're, we're commanded to, in fact. But there are times when we need to silence our minds during our prayer and during meditation. And you can't find silence in the company of others. So Jesus sought solitude where he could be away from the crowds when he could be away from what was expected of him to produce, to be alone with his father, to be alone with the spirit, and to be produced. This is hard for us, I think, on two fronts. It's a personal reason that this is very difficult, and there's a, 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 a practical, a pragmatic reason that this is very difficult. First, I think a lot of us find it difficult to seek after solitude, knowing what we're going to do, meditate on scripture and pray because it makes us uncomfortable. And it makes us uncomfortable because when it's just you and the Lord, you can't role play anymore. Have you ever found yourself like quiet, silent, alone by yourself? You know, like, you know, Lord, it's been a real tough week. Uh, you know, sorry, Sam, but I'm, I'm trying to do my best. And you're like, well, nobody's around. He knows you weren't trying to do your best, right? And then all of a sudden the elephant in the room is like snapping his fingers. I don't think elephants snap, but if they could, and God's like, we need to address this, right? That's an uncomfortable place to be, but I'll tell you what, it's a beautiful place to be because all of your faults, all of your failures, that elephant in the room can be dealt with in that moment. And we can fulfill and obey with what Christ has told us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Man, we don't want to repent. We want to keep our sin. We want to pretend like we've got it all together. And in silence and solitude and meditation and prayer, you know that's not true. And you have to come face to face with reality. And that's the place you are healed. Jesus sought solitude not for forgiveness of sins, but for strengthening and encouraging by the Holy Spirit. You also receive that in meditation and prayer, in solitude and in silence. We can have our sins forgiven 
and be lifted up in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a precious thing. Why don't we do it? I think there's another more practical reason of why we find this very difficult to do. Solitude and silence are just hard to come by these days. It's, it's almost impossible, right? Our world is anything but silent, and it's anything but conducive to being alone, right? Social media today and our smartphones and our devices bring with us community, even at a very superficial level, but it's still there, brings with us community wherever you go. You get these things all the time, emails, tweets, uh, calendar events, they ding constantly in your purse and your pocket. They're demanding your attention all the time. This wasn't going on just 20 years ago, and yet now here today, I think it's, it's very, very difficult to be able to concentrate and to find silence and solitude. And so, more so than ever, we have to seek out solitude. We have to intentionally find silence, and it's very difficult for us. Your biggest ally in this is going to be airplane mode. Just swipe it. I promise you, no one's going to call you. It's going to be okay. Just 10 minutes. Just start there. 10 minutes of airplane mode. I have an app that blocks all incoming and outgoing traffic on social media sites. So like, even if I'm tempted, I'm like habitually like, oh, I wonder if I can find this on Twitter. It's like, Kyle, get back to whatever you're doing, right? Airplane mode, it's a, it's a brilliant thing. Or camp. Okay, there are campers in here. That's a great way to do it. Some of you might not like camping. That's okay. You got to get used to when owls hunt for rabbits at night. That's creepy the first time you hear it because it sounds like someone is dying next to your tent. But if you can get over that, typically the wilderness provides beautiful solitude and silence. I'm sure there are other ways to do it. I just kind of like the rabbit thing with the owl. So silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. I think this is more of what Paul is getting at. A best use of our time. How do we redeem our time? And it's something that we have to work at. That we have to seek for. So that in solitude we may find silence. And that in silence we may have this optimum condition for meditating on God's word and for responding to God in our prayer. We allow God to speak to us through his word, and we respond to God in our prayer. So let's consider that first part now. Meditation on God's word, his works, and his promises in specific. I didn't know this until I was preparing for this message, but it's, a, it's an awesome observation from the Old Testament. Do you know what the first command that God gave Israel before they entered into the promised land. They had been redeemed from Egypt. They wandered through the wilderness. They came to the banks of the Jordan. They were about to step foot into the land, and God gave them this command. Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. We would think that God's command, the first thing that they would receive at the banks of the Jordan, is God just like ripping open the curtain to the land and be like, go on and get it. Take it. It's yours. But we know from the Old Testament, that's not how it went. God is the one who's doing this, right? 
God didn't say, take it, and then when you're done and you've established your society, why don't you come on back and meditate on my word? No. The priority for God was that we would first meditate on his word. He's given us his promises. He's given us his law. He's shown us his works, and now God is asking them to meditate on his law. It's more important to God what he is producing in us than what we are producing. And so God asks us to meditate so that he can produce within us what he desires to see in our life. And if we're obedient to meditate on God's word, here is this promise that our way would be prosperous and that we would have good success. It might not be prosperity in the way the world sees it. It might not be success in the way the world sees it, but it will certainly be prosperity and good success in God's economy and the way that he sees it. So meditate. I hear the objection. Well, wait a minute. I thought meditation was bad. It's like Hindu things or Buddhist things. I've got that third cousin and that strange aunt has been trying to get me to meditate with her in thieves' oil stuff for years. <laughs> now, what, what am I supposed to, supposed to do with that? Why are you telling me to meditate now when I thought that was not something that we Christians were supposed to do? Well, let's ask ourselves a question. Very basic one. What is meditation? It comes from a Latin word, which means to think or to contemplate or to ponder. It's more than a brief consideration of something, of an object or subject. It is a deep reflection and concentration on a thought or an object or an idea. Biblically, to meditate in the Old Testament is commonly used with this word seha, which means a long, thoughtful contemplation on an event, an object, a person, a memory. So for example... Isaac just lost his mom, Sarah. She passed away. In Genesis 24, it says that Isaac went out uh, into a field to meditate, presumably on uh, his mother's memory. Psalm 77, verse 12, the author writes, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So here is an Israelite contemplating everything that God has done for both him and his people all their days. Well, why meditation? Why can't we just like read it, think about it, and then move on? Biologically, something's happening when you meditate. Right? There's actually something about you that's changing when you meditate. It forces you to slow down. And in silence and solitude, you have less information coming in to you, right? The, the kids aren't talking to you. The, the Twitter is quiet for a second. Just Twitter, not the Twitter, right? Everything's quiet. And so the theory goes, now your brain is less distracted and you're able to put forth more energy into this thing that you are focusing on, this object, this person, this idea. So back to the original question, isn't meditation bad? Isn't this like a Hindu thing or a Buddhist thing? Well, I would argue first, it can't be because the Bible commands us to do it. Which means our idea of meditation has become corrupted. What we think about meditation is not biblical. Like anything else in scripture, God gives us good gifts. And because of sin, 
We distort them. We misuse them. We abuse them. Is there anything wrong with money or sex or authority? No. But when we abuse them and misuse them, it becomes sin. Meditation is no different. If we abuse meditation and we misuse meditation, it can become sinful. And so I want to address specifically what are the misuses of meditation in a Hindu and a Buddhist framework. For Hinduism, the goal of meditation is to discover God and truth within one's self. If you want the answers, look inward. Because God is everything, and everything is God. And it is only an illusion that you are separated from this power, and this truth, and this reality. And so when you meditate, the goal is to lose that subject-object distinction. Is to erase the line between creator and creation, and realize that you are part of creator. Therefore, all knowledge and truth and goodness comes from within you. What do you suppose Paul... (laughs) would say to something like that. He answered it in Romans 1. No, this is foolishness. This is idolatry. You have blurred the creator-creation distinction. You have exchanged the truth for a lie. The problem with Hindu meditation is that it looks inward for truth, when in reality we must look outward for the truth found in God. It is an exact opposite of what meditation is supposed to be. Well, what about Buddhism? Buddhism's goal for meditation is to achieve enlightenment and then eventually flee oneself beyond suffering. So the goal of meditation is to get away from life's greatest ill, to move beyond suffering forever, to lift you out of suffering. Here's the problem with this. Suffering is not something that we're meant to leave. It's something that we're meant to endure. One day there will be no suffering. That is the promise of the gospel. But for now, if you take up crisis, or if you take up your cross and follow Christ, you will endure suffering. But the promise of the gospel is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be able to endure suffering. So we see glimpses of this, for example, in 2 Timothy 4.5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. Don't try to escape it. Don't meditate out of it. You can't. It's impossible. Endure it. Do the work of evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And in James 1, verses 2 through 4, actually, he takes it a step further and says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because these testings produce in you endurance and steadfastness. So ironically, when a Buddhist attempts to escape suffering, they're actually robbing joy from themselves from being able to follow in the footsteps of Christ and to endure suffering. Buddhist meditation demands now, escape from suffering, what the gospel has promised us for the future. So we can see it's a gift that God has given humanity that has been inverted or turned upside down, misused or abused. Well, then what about biblical meditation then? What is biblical meditation? There's a lot of different definitions I learned, but I think one for us today that will be most helpful is a very simple one. Biblical meditation is quiet, 
thoughtful contemplation on the word, the works, and the promises of God. It's quiet, thoughtful contemplation on the word, the works, and the promises of God. It's not looking inward. It's looking outward. It's not trying to escape, but it's welcoming God's will, even if God's will means to endure suffering. And with that, one verse comes to mind for me, and that's Philippians 4, 8. Within the context, Brad read this passage for us during worship. And it says this, Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And when you think about all of these things, what is the greatest truth and the greatest honor and the greatest justice and purity and love and commendation and excellence beyond the word, the works, and the promises of God? Do not all of these things flow from God's word and from his works and from his promises? I scoured the Psalms this past week trying to find what psalmists meditate on. And those are the only three things that I could find. God's word, his precepts, his statutes. God's work, his mighty deeds, his wondrous actions. And God's promises. Okay, well that's great. There's the object. Now we know what we are meditating on when it comes to meditation. His word, his works, his promises. But how do we do it? If we have negative examples of how not to meditate, how should we then meditate as Bible-believing Christians? I see this as a two-step process in each one of these areas. So when we come to God's word, we come to his works, and we come to his promises, there's two things that we have to ask. The first question is, what does this word or this work or this promise mean objectively? And the second is what does this word or this work or this promise mean to me? That being subjectively. So for example, Isaiah chapter six, verse three. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. When meditating on this passage, first ask yourself this question, what does this mean? What does this mean objectively? What truth is this communicating to me? God is holy. God is morally pure. He commands respect. He is awesome in the truest sense of that word, that bringing awe to us. He is power. He is above the hosts. He's above the crowd. He's above multitudes, the population, because he is the creator of those crowds and hosts and multitudes. The whole earth is filled with his glory regardless of whether or not people recognize that glory. Secondly, ask the question, now that I know what this means, what does this mean to me? I am not holy. I am impure, finite, limited, a sinner, and powerless. I am in the hosts. I am in the multitudes. I am in the population because I am created and not creator. I do not stand above these crafts. 
Do I recognize that God's glory fills the earth? What about meditating on God's works? Find a passage of scripture that talks about a mighty, wondrous work of God and ask the same questions. So for example, Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chose, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So what is the work that God has done here? He has blessed us and he has chosen us. In Colossians 1.22, Christ is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What is God's work here? But the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So we ask our two questions. First, what, does these, what do these passages mean? That God has blessed us through the Lord Jesus. That he chose us before the world was created, that he wants us to be a holy and blameless people before him. Well, what do these passages mean to me? That despite my sin, God desires to bless me through the Lord Jesus. That despite my limitedness and powerlessness, God has chosen me before the world was created. That despite my unholiness and impurity, God makes me holy and blameless through Christ. And finally, to meditate on God's promises. I have two verses for this, for example. Ephesians 5, 26, uh, 25 through 27. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or without any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. This is a promise that has been given to us as his church of what he is doing. And 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This again is a promise that he has made us a holy nation, that he has made us a people for himself. So what does this mean? That Christ loves the church and he died for her, that he sanctifies the church, that he cleanses the church for, through his word, and that he desires to present her spotless. What does this mean to me? But when, quant when, when contemplating and thinking about Christ's sacrifice, I must repent from sin. Because if it's God's promise that he's making me pure, well, repentance is part of that process. That when contemplating about Christ's cleansing the church, I must be sanctified by the Spirit. And that when contemplating Christ presenting the church to himself spotless, I look forward to that hope in the future where I'm freed from the presence and the enemy, uh, the presence of enemy, sin, and death forever. And all that I want us to notice, and now you can see why you need time to do it, right? Why you need silence and why this needs to be a meditative state. And I want us to notice one thing, that those questions about you come second, and even those questions about you are geared towards God. Meditation is not a time to think about yourself. It's a time to think about Christ. It's a time to think about the Holy Spirit. It's a time to think about the Father and how you are wrapped up in the work that he is doing. It's not about you in meditation. It is about God, the outside upward trajectory of our meditation. Your word is too simple 
Your works are too powerless. Your promises have been broken time and time again. That's why when you look into yourself, you will not find truth. God's word is his perfect revelation. His works are most powerful and his promises remain sure. It's why we must look out to him in our meditation. And here it is where we see the relationship between meditation and prayer. When meditating on God's word, his works, and his promises, you can't help but be taken to a place of prayer. So what is prayer? We could do an entire series on just prayer alone. But simply put, prayer is communication with God. He speaks to us through his word. We respond to him in prayer. And as with any relationship, that relationship's health depends on communication. If you want that relationship to work, there must be communication present. Prayer is how we respond to God's work, how we respond to God's words, and how we respond to God's promises. We repent and we confess sin in prayer. We give thanks for salvation and his promises in prayer. We lament and mourn the reality of sin in our life in God's prayer, or in our prayer to God. Paul said in Galatians 5.25 that if we live in the Spirit, we need also to keep in step with the Spirit. And prayer is one of those ways that we keep in step with what the Spirit is doing. It's an essential element to our life with Him because it brings us before God with all of our secrets, with all of our warts, with all of our sins, and all of our failures. We give them over to Him and we ask that His will be done in our life. There's numerous examples of the importance and practice of prayer all throughout Scripture. Prayer is a core element of the life of the church, Acts 2 tells us. Prayer is to be done in faith. So we're not just throwing out empty phrases. Prayer is to be done for the forgiveness of sins. It's helped by the Holy Spirit when we don't even know what to pray. The Holy Spirit prays for us. This was a big issue for Paul because he brings it up in four of his letters. Prayer is to be constant in one's life. You are to constantly be in prayer. It's to be done joyfully. It's to be done in joy. It's to be done in suffering. It's to be done in sickness. Jude says that prayer is how we were built up. And Revelation describes prayer as a really nice-smelling nice scent to God. Who's ever been through uh, an Orthodox or Roman Catholic uh, service? And the, the one thing that one of the priests does is he walks through with the incense, Right? I used to think it's because people smell, which is true, right? That's very true. My brother and I, we went on a, a, a pilgrimage for like a week and a half in Spain. Uh, and these are people walking from all over Europe to this one location. You're supposed to go to this service at the very end of it and receive uh, your, your little certificate saying that you did it. And that place smelled awful. For a thousand years, people came in there and sweat, right? It's in the walls. It's disgusting. And so the first thing they did was the incense, right? And I do think that there was like a practical reason for that, but that's not the point. The point is to show you, do you, do you smell this, this scent? Do you see how it's going up? That's your prayer to God. Like that's the, that's the point that they're trying to make, right? It's sweet to him. It smells nice and it goes up. It's a tiny bit of prayer in the Bible. It's a fraction because from Genesis to Revelation, you see prayer. What I want to do is ask, how do we relate prayer to our lives as a spiritual discipline? Not what is it, but how. How 
should prayer be in the life of a believer? I'm a big believer in a really simple truth. If the Bible is God's word and God already addressed it and he gave us models and he literally told us what to do, why waste your time in talking about it when you could just read about it, right? If this is true, it's inspired. He told us how. He gave us models. He talks about it. Just go straight to the Bible. And the lowercase w word of God, the Bible, will tell you and instruct you on how to pray to God himself through his capital W word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. There's a really great uh, book by a guy named Don Whitney called Praying the Bible, which I would totally recommend for, for everyone in here. He goes through, he gives like six reasons on why we should pray the Bible, and then he gives a bunch of ways in which you can pray the Bible. I think it's a phenomenal book. Uh, you can look him up on Vimeo. I think he's got like a, a little, like five to 10 minute series of videos that you can watch as well that kind of gets the gist of this book. I think that's a very, very helpful resource in praying the Bible. We kind of did it a little bit with meditation, but he'll definitely uh, elaborate on that. But what I want to do is I want to first look at a model of prayer that we have in the Bible, and then look at Jesus's instructions himself on prayer, and then end our time with a prayer that we would pray together as a community. One of my favorite models, stories of prayer is actually the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel. Samuel was a prophet. Hannah was Sam's mom. I know him on a first name basis, by the way. <laughs> Hannah had a husband. See if this sounds familiar. Hannah had a husband, righteous woman, and her husband's name was Elkanah, and Elkanah had a second wife. Her name was Penina. Now, Hannah was barren. She couldn't have any babies. But guess who could? Penny. Yeah, she could. Penina. I know her on a first name basis as well. Penina. Penina can, Hannah can't. So what happens when Penina has a baby and Hannah can't? She's doing that thing, like, oh, isn't this a nice baby? You don't have one yet? Okay, well. Right? She's ripping on Hannah. Does this story sound familiar? Is this not the story of Sarah and Hagar and Abram? History repeats itself, nothing new under the sun. So in that story, Abraham and Sarah, what does Sarah do when Hagar shows baby Ishmael to Sarah, who is barren? Sarah's like, get out of the camp. I don't ever want to see you again. Hannah is not doing that. Hannah's learned from the mistakes of her ancestors. And instead of reacting in anger, she goes to the Lord in prayer. She lays out the trouble that she has in her life. There's sin in her life, right? This woman keeps dogging me because I can't have a baby. So she goes to the temple, which is the presence of the Lord in the Old Testament. And she says this, or Samuel records this, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head, which is a, a vow, right? So this is a, I will give you to him as service to you. She continued praying before the Lord in his presence. So we can already see following after Hannah's model means that we take our problems and our burdens to God in his presence. Now, there's a guy named Eli, who at the time was the high priest, who's sitting near 
the temple door and sees this going on. The Bible records her as, as like with her eyes closed and her mouth muttering, but no words are coming out. So Eli's thinking two things as the high priest. One, what's she doing here? Why? Ladies aren't supposed to be there at the temple. And second, she must be drunk. I see her lips moving. She's muttering, but nothing's coming out of her mouth. And so he says, excuse me, ma'am, what's going on? <laughs> and she says, I'm not drunk. I promise you, here's my story. And here's what I've been praying. And Eli was moved to compassion. And Eli, as the mediator, the high priest between Israel and God, responds. He says, go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And guess what? Lord heard her prayer. She conceived. She praised God. She called the boy Samuel, and he became a prophet. From that model, I think we see a wonderful picture of what it means to pray in the life of a believer. How, what can we learn from Hannah's prayer? We can learn that we are to confess to God the sin in our life, whether that sin we commit or sin committed against us. We just bring our brokenness to him and pour our heart out before him. We have to do this in the presence of the Lord. As Hannah went to the temple, you must also recognize that in prayer through the Holy Spirit, you are in his presence. We identify specifically the problems in our life. We just don't throw our hands up and say, like, God, everything's out of order. Well, what? Specifically, tell him what you believe is out of order. We petition to God. Lord, I'm powerless. I'm limited. You're all powerful. Help me. I need your help. I need you. And we pray through a mediator. I think that's the key point in this story. Eli was the high priest who heard and confirmed Hannah's prayer. But who is our high priest that hears and confirms our prayer? Jesus. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And when God answers our prayers, whether that be yes, no, or maybe or later, we give him thanks because we know that his will is perfect and that it is good. It's a beautiful model. It's not the only one, but it's one of my favorites. But then there's also literally black and white instructions on how we are to pray, isn't there? Jesus gives them to us. It's called the Lord's Prayer. The Word of God himself gave us instructions on how to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, he prefaces it. He says, when you pray, don't do it for self-glory. Don't get out in front of the street and then show everybody that you're praying. In our culture today, if you were to like walk out and just like open up and pray in like Bienville Square, you're not going to draw a crowd. Well, you're going to draw the wrong crowd, right? Like, oh, look, the crazy guy. I was waiting to see this, right? But back in that day, if you walked out and you prayed, everybody would go, oh, look how spiritual and religious they are. We still have that issue, right? So don't, don't pray uh, to, for self-glorification. Pray in private and away from prying eyes. There it is again, silence and solitude. He said also, don't pray rote repetitive mantras. Don't say a prayer over and over and over again just because you think it's some kind of mystical, magical thing that once you say it enough times, all of a sudden God's going to go, ah, the seventh time they said that. Perfect. I was waiting six and it would have been too little. Eight and I stopped listening. Right? No, that's foolish. Pray with sincerity. Pray with specificity and pray with your heart. In fact, Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know what the sad irony is about this prayer? Remember the preface about not speaking something in mantra that he literally just said five seconds ago? This prayer has become an empty mantra. 
right? People just say it. They don't know why they're saying it. It's just coming out of their mouth, and they think, well, if I say this, God will bless me. No, this is a blueprint. This is a framework. You build your prayer on this model, and like a coat rack, you hang specific things on it so that it would be an effective prayer. Let me show you what I mean. Let's walk through this one bit at a time. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Remember our questions? What does this mean? What does this mean to me? Our Father, our divine dad, our provider, that's what good fathers do. Our authority, our protector, our judge, our disciplinarian, our guardian, our holy father. Notice it's ours, not my. He didn't say pray this way. My father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give me my daily bread. Nope, ours. This is a, a body of Christ thing. We pray as a people, not a community. I want to do a side note too. Praying specifically to the fathers. This came up in our, in our pastor's community. I'm sure some of you have this question. Is Jesus saying to pray, uh, every single time you pray, essentially what it's doing is like your prayer comes and the Holy Spirit and Jesus is like, whoa, to the father? Not necessarily. What I think we see here is that beautiful, mysterious mystery that is the Trinity, that God is three in one. We see their roles in prayer. We pray by the power of the Holy Spirit through the mediator of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to the Father. But does that mean you can't pray to the Holy Spirit? Does that mean you can't pray to the Son? No, because while that emphasizes the three in one, praying to Christ emphasizes the three in one, right? So if you've ever wondered, like, oh, did I sin, speaking to the Holy Spirit? No, no. But this is just a a sneak peek of how the roles of the Trinity work in prayer. It goes on. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your authority be known and let your authority be obeyed. Let your will be perceived and let your will be followed, not only by us, but by everybody. Let your reign be seamless between heaven and earth. Let us fall perfectly into your will. Give us this day our daily bread. We are finite. You are infinite. We need sustenance. You are the sustainer. Every single moment of my existence, I depend on you. For every meal I have, for every breath I take, for every millisecond that my atoms hold together, by electric magnetism, this is your will. Provide it for us. And forgive us our debts. Thank you for the blood of your son and for his empty tomb. And we ask now in faith that you would remove sin from us so that sin's penalty and power would be gone from us. As we forgive or have forgiven our debtors. That's the hardest one, right? Lord, teach us to forgive like you do in totality. Lord, search our hearts for any any, any unforgiveness, any hatred or ill will that we harbor towards somebody. Convict us to make peace and to forgive them. And finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Steer us clear from sin. Warn and protect us when sin is near. And we look forward to your coming when one day there will be no more evil. Friends, there is power in this prayer. There is power in all prayer. This is why the enemy so often distracts us with chaos and noise. 
The enemy is fearful of your prayers. He hates them. He wants to make you skeptical of prayer, fearful of meditation. This is why the enemy hates it when we meditate on God's word, his work, and his promises, because it is producing in us what God desires to see in our life. It's why the enemy will stop at nothing to cut off communication and fellowship between us and God. Been reading through C.S. Lewis's classic, The Screwtape Letters. Highly recommend it. And this is a fictional account of an elder demon named Screwtape to a younger demon named Wormwood. And Screwtape is kind of showing the younger demon, Wormwood, the ropes. So they're exchanging letters. Wormwood has just been assigned his first person who recently became a believer. So Wormwood is guiding this younger demon on how to tempt him well. And the younger demon writes Screwtape and says, my guy started praying, what should I do? And Screwtape has all of these things to keep us from prayer. But one in specific I think is very possible, or uh, very powerful. Screwtape, the elder demon, writes this. He says, whenever there is prayer, there is danger of God's own immediate action. Forgive me my sins. Help me in this situation. Provide for me. Screwtape goes on. God is cynically indifferent to the dignity of his position and ours as pure spirits and to the human animals on their knees. He pours out self-knowledge in quite a shameless fashion. If any of you lack wisdom, ask and he will give it to you. I think it's a really neat way to just show the other side of the coin in prayer. The enemy hates it. And if you want to push back the kingdom of darkness, if you want to rail against the gates of hell, which will not prevail against us, what better way than to do so in prayer? Run to solitude. Seek after silence, no matter how difficult it is. Make the best use of your time meditating on God's work, his words, and his wisdom, and his promises. Meditate and allow that meditation to move you to a place in your prayer, to where you are adoring God, where you're confessing sin, when you are thanking him for everything that he's given you, and when you are asking God for whatever our needs are. The one thing I've missed um, since moving back to the United States from Cambridge in England is, uh, was, was prayers. We were in an Anglican church. It was an evangelical Anglican church. It was uh, theologically orthodox, as in right belief, good belief. Uh, because there's so many Anglican churches in England that aren't. And uh, one thing that it took a while for us to get used to, because we're very low church, obviously I'm wearing Chuck Taylor's uh, type of people. And uh, we would walk in there and then the vicar would get up and they would, they, would, they would read this thing. And I'm like, boring, get to the sermon, right? Uh, but after three years, I started to finally appreciate what we were doing every week. The temptation is either to do what I did, boring, or to just read the words and, and hope that God is, you know, making those powerful. But if you mean what you say, there's power, I think, in that communal prayer. There's power in being effective in what you are saying. And there's power when the, when the, when the church prays together.